0: Good morning. My name is Spencer, and I am one of the pastors here. We're going to be in Genesis 1 and 2 today. We're in a series called Theology of Sex Plus. So uh, we did this series, uh, Theology of Sex, nearly nine years ago, the very beginning of 2016. A lot has changed uh, since 2016. First off, uh, we don't title sermons like we used to. There was, a, there was a sermon title back in the 2016 series called, Do You Even Sports, Bro?, which is just not something you hear nowadays in our sermon titles. Um, but a lot has also changed since then, like culture has continued to shift, and in that series, we approached it, we talked about um, a theological basis for sex and gender and Sexuality and what the Bible has to say about those things. And uh, some of that stuff has is, is stayed the same. A lot of it has changed because uh, the culture has continued to shift. Uh, back then, if we polled the room, it's probably likely that if we asked and said, if you, Do you know someone who identifies as LGBTQ? I would say, not just know, but do you have a friend, do you have a family member? A coworker, I think probably half the room would have said, yeah, I do. I think if you did that now, it would be much higher. And back then, I, in 2016, I don't even think the Q plus was a major uh, part of the mainstream thought on LGBT issues. It was just LGBT, and that's even shifted because more things have been added to these identifier uh, letters. I think even the language of identifies as was not in the mainstream lexicon. It wasn't uh, the language of the day like it is now. It's so commonplace to have that type of language. I think the phrase back then, that I am a, uh, I'm a man trapped in a woman's body, or I'm a woman trapped in a man's body, was more foreign than it is now. I think if you say that phrase now, most people know where that is coming from. So a lot has changed in the last eight to nine years. And, Being in this culture, we've experienced really a lot of, I would say even maybe a bombardment of, different cultural narratives that run contrary to the gospel, that that are antithetical, that run against some of the gender and sexual ethics that the scriptures uphold. And you see this, you see this in popular TV shows and and, and film. You can't scroll through social media without hearing some of these narratives. It's ingrained very much in the fabric of, of our culture, and I think that's increased since we did this back in 2016, but also since 2016, even things in that arena have changed. Some of the ideas have shifted. If you go back and read the lyrics of Lady Gaga's Born This Way, if you read them in light of some of the current uh, cultural thought on sexuality and gender, those might even seem a little bit outdated compared to today's Phrasing. A lot of the language then was that sexuality and gender were really fixed categories that were, you were born this way, that were unchangeable. But even that has changed in mainstream thought, that it's more fluid now. So a lot has changed in the last decade, and we are in a culture um, that has a different worldview than the Christian worldview. And Sundays are a time for the church to gather together. To really reset and to hear what the scripture says and how it speaks to a whole host of issues. But it's a time for us to reset and remember what's actually true and what's actually good and what's actually beautiful. I mean, this is not just for the subject matter of this sermon series, but this is for a whole host of things. It's the reason we do a Give series every year around... Christmas time because we live in a culture that's so immersed in consumerism, it's so immersed in materialism, and we—that's so ingrained the fabric of our culture, and it affects us. That we need to remember what it means to not worship money, but to actually be people that worship God and lay our finances down before Him. It's the reason why over and over again we have to address the issues of of hatred and the issues of the spiral, because our culture is so angry right now and so so volatile on social media. uh, so um, fierce that we have to address hatred and gossip and slander and racism and the works. So it is a time for us to come and hear the Word of God and hear what is true and hear what is good and hear what is beautiful. And a lot has changed in the last eight to nine years on this subject matter, so we thought it was wise to actually cover it again in this sermon series, and that's what we're going to do over the next six weeks. Today, specifically, what we're going to do is we're going to start laying a foundation for how to biblically approach the subject matter. We're going to look at Genesis 1 and 2 to to have a biblical basis for understanding how to even approach the subject matters that we'll later get more into topically as it relates to homosexuality, gender, societal ethics related to that. But in the coming weeks, we're going to lay that foundation and then we're going to do what we normally do in sermon series, that we're going to continue to walk out what's taught here on Sundays in the context of our community groups. We will continue that discussion. And here's what I love about our groups. I love that our groups in difficult stuff that we don't avoid, we don't avoid difficult topics in the Bible. I love that our groups walk this out graciously, that we speak the truth in love love that we seek to be not harsh with our language, but gracious towards one another. We seek to see one another as men and women made in the image of God, and Christians seeking to conform to the image of Christ, and seekers trying to figure this out. And that's where we'll get to continue to live this out in the context of our community groups. So, it's a heavier subject matter of the next six weeks, but we invite you into it to walk with us as we seek to understand what the Bible has to say about these matters. But today we're going to start in Genesis 1 and 2 to establish that foundation. Here's what we're going to see over the next two weeks. That we are created, image-bearing, embodied, and distinct people who are made for complementary co-rule with our God. So, I'm only going to focus on the first part of that. And Chet's going to pick it up next week on the last part of that. Today, specifically, we're going to look at how we are created, image-bearing, embodied, distinct people. So, let me pray for us, and then we'll walk through this together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be so present now, that you'd speak so clearly to us from your word, that we would open our hearts a subject matter that is difficult that is not foreign that affects many of us who have different family members and friends and wonderful people in our lives that would think differently about this even folks in our church family that think differently about this God I pray that you'd help us be open to your word we'd receive it and we'd walk this out in faith and in repentance and in worship, and delighting in you as a community, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're going to see first that we are created. In Genesis 1:26, after God, uh, the first Genesis account has the first aspects of creation and how the universe came to be, and then we get to the creation of mankind, of humanity. And it says in verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image. Let us make. Now that may seem obvious to Christians that God is creator, but it has to be stated. God made humanity. God is the sovereign Maker. He's the one who rules all things, who has made all things, who governs all things. He made humanity. God made man. And that has to be established for a reason. That has to be established because we live in a time where in our culture we'll reject that narrative in favor of its own. I was listening to a professor named Abigail Fable. She's a professor at Notre Dame. She's a background in uh, gender studies. And in this interview, she's recounting how she went from being kind of an a-religious, a religious postmodernist, feminist uh, academic to where she is now, which is uh, a giving critique of that movement from an academic standpoint, not necessarily from a biblical standpoint. But I was listening to her and kind of her journey of how she's come to where she is now in her academic uh, pursuits and in even her faith that she's newly found. And she's wicked smart, and she gave the most succinct definition of postmodernism that I think I've ever heard. Postmodernism is the worldview. It's the the worldview that we live in. It's the very air that we breathe. It's how we think and how we view the world. We are living in a postmodern moment that we're all collectively in. And she says that postmodernism is the worldview that sees reality as narratives created by human beings rather than an order of objective reality discovered by human beings. And I thought she hit the nail on the head, that this worldview that we live in in the West is a bunch of competing narratives, that all narratives culturally are just man-made. All all stories, all narratives are just man-made. And what happens is is you have a bunch of competing narratives, a bunch of competing stories. And what's kind of resulted in is a little bit of a power struggle. That's why so much of the language in this uh, discussion is so hypercharged. It's because it's a a competition of narratives. And it's viewed largely in Western culture as each one of these are man-made. And she says... As opposed to us as humans recognizing the objective narrative, the objective reality, that there is no such thing as competing truths. There's no such thing as your truth or this truth or that truth. There is one absolute and objective truth. And we as humans, as created beings, get to discover what that reality is. And I thought her wisdom on that was very helpful and insightful. We have to establish that God made man, that God is creator, and we are his creatures. We have to recognize that he made us and how he made us. So first, God is creator. The second is that we are image bearers. We are image bearing people. It goes on in verse 26 of Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man, in our image, after our likeness. So God says, let us make man, mankind, human beings, in our image, after our likeness. This doctrine is known as the imago Dei. It's Latin for the image of God. And this image of God doctrine, this is unbelievably profound and wonderful. It's one of the more mysterious and impactful doctrines in all all of theology, that theologians have debated this doctrine for the last 2,000 years and the mystery of it and the wonder of it, that we as humans are made like God, that we are like him in some wonderfully mysterious and powerful way, that unlike any other aspect of creation, we are distinct and different, that we are like God. That we are like God in the way that my dog is not. There's something distinct about us. And what's debated is, okay, well, how are we like God? How are we like God unlike any other aspect of creation? And there's really, really helpful arguments that really help flesh that out. One one of those is is that there's something about our, our physical characteristic, our physical embodiment, the way we look, that reflects somehow God's spiritual self. If you were with us in the book of Exodus, we looked at this a little bit in uh, Exodus when Moses is wanting to see the face of God. But there's some aspect of the image of God that our physicalness somehow reflects God's spiritualness, that God is spirit, but that somehow we're like him in some mysterious way. Another way this is flushed out is that there is an intellectual component That somehow, unlike the rest of creation, God has given us the intellect, the ability to reason, the ability to think in a way that is more like him, unlike any other aspect of creation. Some will argue for the more relational aspect, that unlike any other aspect of the animal kingdom, that humanity is relational and the ways that we build families and societies and communities. Some will argue that there's a moral component to the image of God, that we are moral beings, that you can turn on planet earth and watch a lion track down a zebra and kill it. And it doesn't, no one is pounding the TV, getting furious that this injustice has happened. There's no there's morality in that. But someone hunts down another human being and it's absolutely a moral issue. There are all, there are a lot of different aspects to how we're made in the image of God. And I think all of those have arguments, have different, value and merit to them. I think they all capture some of this mystery of how we're made to be like God, but you put those all together and what that adds up is that humanity has unbelievable dignity and value and worth as being image bearers. Every human being has dignity and value and worth. Whether you identify as transgender or a Christian, every single human being has unbelievable dignity and value and worth as being image bearers made in the image of God. And that gets established in Genesis 1. Now, what does it mean to, what do you do with that as image bearers? And that's what the Lord continues to show us in as this verse continues. Let us make man and our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That as distinct image bears that have value and worth and dignity, we get to co-rule with God. We get to bring dominion to the chaos of creation. A few years ago, we spent time in the book of Genesis, a lot of time kind of like we did in Exodus. And and we spent some time in Genesis 1 and 2. You can go back and listen to those sermons. You can hear how the different uh, creation accounts come together so beautifully and wonderfully. But we established then that part of our image-bearingness is to help bring order to the chaos of this world. This world is made chaotic, and we're meant to subdue it with our God. And that is wonderful. And that's an aspect of our image bearing. Now, we are like God, unlike any other aspect of creation, but we are not exactly like God. God is creator. We are creature. We are created. God is spirit. And we are embodied. And that's the third essential aspect I want us to see as we're establishing this foundation, that we are embodied image bearers. We're embodied in the second creation account. When it starts to focus more on the creation of man, we get to see how mankind is made. In Genesis 2, verses 7 and following, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. That God takes the raw elements of this earth. He takes dust. He takes atoms, and he forms them into a man. He forms them into Adam. And then he breathes life into him. And this is intentional, intentional of how God designs humanity to be embodied, that his moral, intellectual, relational, dominion, sharing beings are not just spiritual, but they're embodied. They have flesh, we have organs, we have blood. That's purposeful, that's designed, that his image bearers can throw a 50-yard pass for a touchdown that I saw so wonderfully last night from our backup quarterback, that his image bears can paint an impressionist painting of the sunrise, can build and rebuild an engine, can weave a tapestry, can smoke a brisket, can do all types of wonderful things that help bring creation into order. And all of these abilities are done physically, with. Physical body parts and physical minds. There's a reason why we don't live underwater. It's by God's design that we we don't have gills. We're land dwellers. That's all intentional in how God makes us as embodied creatures, and that's unbelievably important to establish. One of the earliest and most destructive heresies, false teachings. In the first few centuries of the church was something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism, you can see the early kind of seabed beginnings of it in the book of in the Gospel of John and how he is telling the story of Jesus. But you can see it in church history, in the centuries that followed, and in Gnosticism, one of the core teachings is this aspect of dualism, this division between material matter and spiritual matter and in this dualism that Gnosticism espouses material matter is intrinsically evil it's it's in and of itself evil and that the spiritual matter is good and really that's the problem that's what Gnosticism says teaches that Jesus wasn't embodied, that he was spiritual because he's not of material evil subject matter. It's this idea of division between matter and spirit. And then this teaching that really raged through the church in the first few centuries, it taught that really what really mattered is this spiritual self and really this inner spiritual self pitted against the body and that's not the teachings of the scriptures at all and the implications of that are rather dangerous the body matters our bodies matter our bodies are not intrinsically evil we certainly inherit fallenness and evil from the fall but when god made humanity said it's good our bodies are good We, we we should not it all espouses that bodies are materially evil at all. Our bodies have dignity and purpose and value and worth. I love what one theologian says, Andrew Walker, professor, he says, this means matter matters. Our bodies matter. Your body is not arbitrary. It is intentional. While you are more than your body, you are not less. Hear that. While you, you certainly are more than your body, and the, more, the older that you get, and the more that you start to fade and decay, that, that, that reality is there. Yeah, I am definitely more than my body, but don't hear that you're less than. No, you are not less than your body. We're not just a collection of atoms and synapses that happen to be conscious, nor are we God-aware souls trapped in the materials of the universe. And what he's addressing there is we're not a collection of atoms that just... Evolved together, they just happen to be conscious, nor are we just God aware souls in the prison of a body. That's not the teaching of the scriptures. He says we are living, feeling, emotional, embodied beings designed to relate to and reflect the Creator with each part of ourselves. Every aspect of ourselves matters. And it's designed to, as embodied creatures, to relate and glorify God. That's the third thing I want us to see. Now, God did not make generic, embodied people. He didn't make generic, embodied people. He made genders, man and woman, which makes us Distinct embodied, distinct people. That's what I want to see. the fourth thing I want us to see is that we are distinct people. In Genesis 1, it says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That he made two embodied, engendered image bearers. Both in the image of God. And then in Genesis 2, he goes on to show how that happened. So we saw what happened with Adam, that he takes raw elements, real, physical, material, good elements from the ground and puts his image into Adam. And then we see the creation of Eve, picking up in verse 21 of chapter 2. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the red that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Again, material here. that he, he takes a part of Adam's body and informs Eve. Verse 23, Then the man said, This at last is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And that's poetry, which in the English is not all that lovely sounding. In the Hebrew, it sounds a little bit better. But what's actually being captured there is that Adam has wandered without a counterpart. Every other aspect of creation has a counterpart, but he doesn't. And he's lonely. And God makes Eve. And he says, this at last is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is joyous. Poetic. I'm not alone. Therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, Chet later on is going to, in the upcoming sermons, address this more directly and with more time, but let me just say very plainly that that's the first time in the Bible we see in verse 24 that the original design for sex is within the context of marriage between man and a woman and that sex outside of that marriage covenant is a rebellion against the will of God. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, you cannot read the creation narratives. You cannot read these creation stories. You cannot tell our history and leave with the idea that men and women are generic image bearers. Human beings are not generic. We are embodied and we are engendered. Every person is created engendered. And I know when I say that, there's a, there's a, there's a direct rebuttal from some folks to say, wait a second, wait a second, what about intersexual people? And we'll spend more time on that later, but let me just address that out the gate. Um, intersexual uh, people Intersex is a, is a genetic abnormality that the chromosomal makeup, your DNA doesn't match your phenotypical, your, your uh, uh, genitalia, your anatomy. There's a difference there, and it happens in about .018% of the population. It is exceedingly rare. If you study this, you might see a, t- a statistic thrown around that says 1.7%. That is not true. I can send you the NIH study that backs that, that shows that there's a lot of other uh, genetic deformations that are thrown in that category, but the actual amount of people in this world that have a different cr- chromosomal DNA makeup than their, than their genitalia, that, that's only 0.018% of the population. It's exceedingly rare. And in the same way that someone might be born without hands because of a genetic abnormality, because of the fall, because of the fallenness in a fallen world, this happens. That's a rare exception. It doesn't mean that the created order doesn't mean that we're supposed to have hands. And what happens a lot of times in these discussions is the rare exception gets upheld to disprove the rule. No, we're created engendered, male and female, which means, it means men. You are male from your external features, your Adam's apple, your genitalia, your muscular structure, your bone structure, all the way down to your DNA is maleness by purpose and design. It means that women, you're, you, you're female from your face to your chest, to your hips, to your genitalia, to your muscular structure, your bones, your womb, all the way down to your DNA is femaleness. And our differences are wonderful. And that is the design of our Creator. That's His intentional handiwork in how He made us. I love what uh, Pastor Kevin DeYoung says about this Genesis 1 and 2 in this regard. He says, far from being a mere cultural construct, which is the argument a lot of times is that gender is just a cultural construct, which we'll get into more later. Far from being a mere cultural construct, God depicts the existence of a man and a woman as essential to his creational plan. It's an essential aspect of Genesis 1 and 2. The two are are neither identical nor interchangeable. But when the woman who was taken out of the man joins again with the man in sexual union, the two become one flesh. Dividing the human race into two genders, male and female, is not the invention of Victorian prudes or patriarchal oafs. It was God's idea. That the idea of man and woman being distinct and different is God's idea. Our creator, that's his idea. And he is creator and we are his creatures. This means that we should recognize the reality and how we're made, and that's important, valuable. And to not do so is actually dangerous. I, I was talking to a few of our uh, doctors this week. I was talking to Mike Goebel and Brandon Hanna. I was getting their take on when you are diagnosing patients, does, how, how much does gender matter? And it's very much an essential aspect of the equation, and to not recognize those differences can be fatal. For instance, men... Who, have, who come in for heart attacks present with what are known as some of the classic symptoms, chest pain, shortness of breath. But that's not the same with women. Women present differently. And if you just take how to treat men and say that's how they're supposed to, it's, it's, it's chest pain and shortness of breath, and you discount what a woman is saying when she comes in having a heart attack, that can be fatal, a very fatal mistake. There's a difference between men and women, and we should embrace that, wonderfully, celebrate our differences. A rejection of that through self-determination, through "I determine who I am, I define who I am," is an elevation of self to Godlike status. And it's a rejection of God's special design for our embodied selves. Andrew Walker goes on to say in his argument that maleness isn't only anatomy, but anatomy shows that there is maleness. And femaleness isn't only anatomy, but anatomy shows there is femaleness. Men and women are more than just their anatomy, but they are not less. Our anatomy tells us what gender we are. Our bodies do not lie to us. God made our bodies and the differences tell a big part of the story. And we shouldn't reject that. Broad shoulders are not an evolutionary development that came from cavemen to protect the family and to go and kill the beast. That is God's intentional, normative design for men, that women are created. Differently, broad hips are not some evolutionary development that happened over time to spare women death and childbirth. That is an intentional, embodied design that God chose. And those differences should be celebrated. They should never be denigrated. They should never be belittled. Not at all. Now, that doesn't mean that there's not exceptions to the rule. Of course there is. Every single woman who fights in the UFC circuit, every single one, UFC is mixed martial arts, every single woman who fights in the UFC circuit could end my life in less than two minutes. That is a fact. (laughs) That is an absolute, undeniable fact. I have a bad back, it would be over probably in less than 60 seconds. Of course, there's exceptions to the rule. And men can be nurturing. My son this week broke his nose. Like, just, you can see him when he gets out of Kid City. It's all black and blue through here. Because he put his arms in his shirt and his legs in his shirt and his class. And then when you fall out of your chair and your arms are in your shirt, your face breaks the fall. And I, <laughs> and I held him in the Children's Hospital emergency room for hours waiting to be seen. I, I absolutely am going to nurture him. It's different than his mom. But those exceptions, those times where we rise, we do different things, they don't disprove the normative creation pattern and rule. They just don't. This is how God used men to build cities. This is how God used women to build society. Our differences come together wonderfully and beautifully. And to if we act like there's not a difference between maleness and femaleness, if we insist upon an interchangeability between the sexes that runs contrary to the design of God, if we do this, to deny the created embodiment of human beings means that we're taking more of our cues from this cultural moment and the philosophy of the day, which resembles more of a neo-Gnosticism than anything else that resembles more of this idea of that your material physical body doesn't matter, but your inner spiritual self is what truly matters, and that is what is ultimately sovereign, is that you listen to that inner self, and that's how you determine who you are. That is more of a form of neo-gnosticism than it is biblical Christianity. It means that we don't tap into a secret knowledge. We tap into the wisdom of the scriptures, humbly searching what it means to be men and women, who are embodied, who are distinct, who are created image bearers. Brothers and sisters, these two indifferent embodied genders are meant to come together wonderfully to fulfill God's creation mandate to subdue the earth, to be, to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and subdue it. Literally cannot happen without two different embodied sexes. It literally cannot happen because of procreation and it cannot happen because we're made in our differences, to come together to co-rule and co-reign. And to argue that these two genders aren't beautifully and wonderfully designed to rule together with our God and all of our differences is to misunderstand reality. And a rejection of reality ultimately is a rejection of the very foundation, the fabric of creation itself, and ultimately it's a rejection of our creator altogether we need a reality check. Humbly, I submit to you, we need a reality check. If I pick up a project home and it requires a hundred foot boards, I need to measure every board. The original measurement matters. If I measure a six-foot board, I cut it, and then I take that board and I say, well, that's going to be my measurement for the next board, and then I cut it. I'm going to be close to a blade length off. And then I would take the next board and use that for the next measurement and cut it. And the next board for the next measurement and cut it and cut it and cut it. I'm going to end up with a bunch of six-foot boards, seven-foot boards, eight-foot boards. And the design of the project is going to go completely out of sorts. And over time in the Western church, and I mean the Western church, not the global south, not the east and the Middle East, because those parts of the church are not... They're not, they're not having a problem with this part of the Bible. It is mostly the Western church, and just be frank, it's mostly the Western white church. One cut at a time, one cut at a time over the last century, one cut at a time, one cut at a time, is getting further and further and further and further away from God's created design for humanity. And we need a reality check. We need to reset. And this series is designed to do just that. It is designed for us to look at the scriptures and the wisdom and the commands and the glorious wonder of how God made us, and to sit in that and not ignore it, to sit in that and see what it is actually wonderfully good and beautiful to trust the Lord with how we are made and how we're to operate. This is what we get to do as the church, and I'm, I'm if we do this humbly. And walk this out as the church family that we're supposed to be. God willing, we're going to discover something wonderful, something good, something beautiful. And how God made us. Now, we get to do that here on Sundays. Then we get to do this scattered in our community groups throughout the week. And we've got a, a wide range of backgrounds, political opinions, opinions it's not a neutral subject that we're going to have discussions in a vacuum. Many of us have family and friends who would disagree with us on this. And I just would ask us to not run from this but to engage, to do so humbly and lovingly, to tone down some harsh opinions, to speak the truth in love. And if we can do this well, we can discover God's beautiful, good design for embodied and gendered Different, created image bearers. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel that saves us. We thank you that we have you who did not look at us in our sin, but became embodied in the flesh for us so that we could look to your death on the cross, your real physical death on the cross for us, your real physical bodily resurrection for us, so that we could worship you, enjoy you as men and women made in your image. Gotta pray that you would invite us into discussions that are soaked in your love and in your wisdom and in your grace. I pray that you'd help us open our hearts. I pray that you'd help us receive the good news of the gospel, the wisdom of your scriptures, and your teachings so that we can be the people of God that you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Matt's going to come up for us, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. On the night that Jesus betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. And then he took the cup of the new covenant. And he said, this is my blood that was shed for you. That as often as you eat and drink the, this, you proclaim my death until I return. So as Christians, we come to the table remembering the death of Jesus. The physical, embodied death of Jesus. What that means for us. All of us. Our sinner is in need of a Savior. All of us are broken. And we come to the table joyfully remembering what Jesus did for us. Remembering that one day he will come back. He will make all things do. In reality, he will ultimately be reset. And we will worship him forever. So if you're a Christian, you get to come to the table. There's gluten-free in that back corner over there. If you're a Christian, we invite you to consider our sin and our Savior and joyfully come to the table and take of this meal. If you're not a Christian, we ask you, please don't take of this meal. We want you to take part in Christ, to take this meal and not know our Savior. As an empty gesture, we want you to know the good news of the gospel that Jesus saves sinners and to place your faith in Him. But we ask you to consider our sin, our Savior, and joyfully come to the table and worship.